Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. My name is Pat Iyer, and I have with me today Allie Caton, a legal nurse consultant and expert witness that I have known for quite some time. Allie is located in Florida and has been involved in providing care to neonates for quite some time and has seen the world of medicine from the bedside of our smallest patients. Allie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I mentioned your expertise in neonatal. Tell us a little bit more about the type of role that you serve in the healthcare system. I've been working in the neonatal intensive care unit since 1999, uh, first as a bedside nurse for six years. And then in 2005, I graduated with a master's degree as a neonatal nurse practitioner and have worked in that realm since 2005. I also um, have been working, you know, I've, I've worked towards my doctorate degree, which I've completed now. And my research was in, in the neonatal realm uh, with patients with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And um, I love my work with the babies. I enjoy um, the milestones and I also am there for the toughest moments as well. But I love, I love it. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> yes. Do the people you work with call you Dr. Caton? They do not. Uh, the only <laughs> in Florida, we're not allowed to be referred to that in the hospital setting. Um, it's against Florida statute. So the only time I am referred to as Dr. Caton is in the realm of my adjunct faculty role at East Carolina University. <laughs> I see. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it reminds me of a physician's assistant in New Jersey who saw my husband years ago. He wore a white coat. He had a stethoscope around his neck. He referred to himself as doctor. And my husband knew how to read the label on his jacket and saw the PA after mm -hmm. his name and called up his attending physician and said, did you know that your physician's assistant is calling himself a doctor? Well, that seemed to stop the practice right then and there. That was the end of that. Uh, I can see why it could potentially be confusing to patients to have a, a nurse be referred to as a doctor. That is correct. And I, I would agree with that. It's, uh, it's definitely something that um, you need to differentiate between a nurse practitioner and a physician's assistant and a physician. And I'm very proud to be a nurse practitioner and I at times will correct parents when they do call me doctor, just not because I have it on my coat, my DNP status, but just um, sometimes they think we're walking in in that capacity. Mm -hmm. And I find it important to share with them my expertise as a nurse practitioner in the neonatal environment. And the parents are very well receptive. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
I can think of times I've testified in the courtroom when I've gotten into a, a verbal sparing match with a cross-examining attorney who says, well, you know, nurses don't write orders. Well, yes, there are nurses who do write orders for medications. Well, but, you know, they're not medical doctors. So they don't make medical diagnoses. Well, they make nursing diagnoses. Uh, it's not a real strong argument for opposing counsel trying to minimize the role of a nurse and the expertise of a nurse. But I know the game that's behind it. And I try to give them a little bit of a hard time, even though I have to concede that they don't make, quote, medical diagnoses. Yes, that's correct. Uh, in the nurse practitioner role, I am able to do a full head to toe assessment. I'm able to write orders. I'm able to intubate. I insert umbilical lines, pick lines, arterial lines. Uh, I can do chest tubes. I can do pericardial taps if I need to, or any, you know, I can basically do everything the physician does um, with their guidance and supervision um, in my role as a nurse practitioner. Um, I do cover a couple of hospitals, uh, level two hospitals by myself in the evening time once the physician leaves for the day. Um, I attend in all, and do all resuscitation in the delivery room setting. I admit babies. I write all the admission orders. I can interpret x-rays. Of course, but you know, if there's concern, I call my radiologist, whoever's on, and or the neonatologist for a consult. Um, so we work as a team in the NICU uh, with the neonatologist. They are very much part of our team as we are of their team. Uh, and we work together for the best interest of the patient always. And with all of this clinical experience, I know there was at some point somebody contacted you and said, Allie, I would like to know if you could review a case for me as an expert witness and testify about standards of care. Tell us about how that first contact came about. It was on a baseball field, <laughs> actually. Uh, my son played baseball with a attorney friend at the time who's also son was on the same team. And we were just sitting having a conversation and he asked me to review a case for an adult, um, for an IV, just like how it was started. Like, can you just like go through the steps of how it was, the IV was started? And I said, sure, but I do, you know, my expertise is babies. And I'm, however, I, the process of starting an IV is the same, whether it's an adult or baby. And um, I kind of showed him, told him, you know, nothing official. And uh, from that point on, he referred me to someone else. And that was in 2006. And I've never advertised my services. It's always been word of mouth. And that's kind of how it evolved. It evolved with me reviewing cases. And then um, I was asked to act as an expert. And I do that occasionally as well. So it kind of uh, fell into my lap. It wasn't anything that I uh, sought out, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And you stressed that the process of starting the IV is the same as in an adult as in a child. And your expertise is in neonatal areas. I know I've had attorneys contact me and think, well, a nurse is a nurse is a nurse. 
you as a med surge nurse can review this case involving the emergency department, can't you? Question mark. Mm -hmm. Why do we stay away from saying yes to those kinds of requests? Because that's not our area of expertise. I never review or act as an expert in any cases involving anything other than a neonate. That includes labor and delivery. I don't review labor and delivery cases either. And I'm in that realm every time I go to work because I'm in the delivery room situation. But it's important to stay within your scope of practice and what you know and not going outside of that area because then you're, well, number one, your credibility is tainted because you're doing something outside your area. And number two, you know what you know. Mm -hmm. I know what I know in my area. And that's my area that I've studied for 21 years at this point. So, yeah. Well, you mentioned a few minutes ago about covering another facility and I'd like to ask your thoughts about conflict of interest, because I find that this is something that's not clear to a lot of legal nurse consultants who start getting involved in a case, or they practice in a small area where everybody knows each other, and they raise questions about, is it a conflict of interest for me to review a specific case? You know, from your understanding as an expert witness, what goes through your mind when you think about conflict of interest? It's an area that can be uh, a slippery slope sometimes. And it's very important as a legal nurse consultant and or expert that you do a conflict check before you accept a case from an attorney because you don't want to... For example, let me back up. I work for a couple of practice management groups, and that's how we practice in Florida. And I would not review nor act as an expert to any colleague who may also be employed with that same group, which is on a national level, even if it's in a different state and I don't know that person because it's within my group. So it's always important to do an ethics check and make sure that when you accept a case that A, you don't know the person personally or professionally and or work in the same group as that person. So it's, it's important to make sure of that because it's, it's very unethical to do that. And then the implications for you, you know, suppose you take a case and you're working for a group that's not part of the defendant group. And then to your horror, you find your group and their group merge. Is there a conflict of interest at that point? Yes, there would be. And it it has personally happened to me. And I was notified of such a case. And although I was the nurse practitioner on that case for a few years before that practice merged with the group I was employed with. Um, It definitely presented a problem. And I was given an ultimatum of either leaving the practice I was working at, or backing out of the case. And in this particular situation, I was not working very much for that group. And it didn't, you know, really uh, cause an issue. 
um, for me personally. So I decided to stay with the case I was working on because I was able to do that. But if I wasn't, I would have to have backed out of that case, even though I was working with that attorney for a few years. And um, I think that this is something that due to medical practices changing with healthcare changing, I think legal nurse consultants and experts are going to run into this more and more um, as time moves on. Certainly as healthcare systems merge with each other, that becomes a real risk for LNCs who are working on cases. You know, in my experience, many LNCs maintain a part-time or a full-time clinical role in addition to doing their case review. And that puts them square on the payroll of that healthcare system where their identity is very clear. They are part of the food chain. That employer is part of their food chain. Yes, that is correct. And uh, we're going, like I said, we're going to see this happening, I think, more and more as these smaller hospitals in the rural communities merge with the bigger hospital systems. And yes, you know, you did bring up a point about working at, you know, to be an expert witness and to work in this realm, you need to be clinically practicing and you need to be up on your skills and your standard of care and the current research on day-to-day operations in whatever unit you may be working in. So it, yes, that conflict, you know, will tend to come up sometimes. And at that point you have to make decisions on what you can or cannot do. And hopefully the attorneys will also understand that this is coming up more frequently um, and that they will have the understanding that you may have to back out of a case, even though you've been kind of into it for quite some time. Yeah, and there are such financial repercussions of that happening. An expert witness has been paid well for his or her expertise. It could be thousands of dollars that you've gotten from the law firm for working on that case. Mm -hmm. And through no fault of your own, now you can't proceed. There are some attorneys who would automatically start thinking, well, then Allie needs to refund me the $7,500 that I have paid her for the work on the case. And that's really awkward. That money has probably been long since spent. So that's a potential, although I don't know that, that it is a common thing that could happen. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Are you interested in 21 tips to run your LNC business efficiently? Are you mired in the frustration or in the details of running your LNC business? Do you struggle to operate your business in your environment? Would it be helpful to declutter your space? Are you looking for ideas on how to manage your to-do list? As a new LNC entrepreneur, you face many unfamiliar challenges, how to acquire clients, how to keep them happy, the need to keep accurate financial records, dealing with the ebbs and flow in work. You may feel overwhelmed. I've written many books that address the above issues. 21 Tips to Run Your LNC Business Efficiently highlights 21 ways that you can sharply reduce the overwhelm 
by making simple and easy changes in your work environment. As a busy clinical nurse who is usually on your feet, you may never have realized that a comfortable office chair could make a big difference in your ability to prevent fatigue and pain by the end of your working day. We hear a lot about decluttering. I provide specific ideas for decluttering your workspace from throwing away unneeded files, giving away surplus books, to cleaning out junk in your computer. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. These 21 quick tips tailored for LNCs will help you create an uncluttered desk, files you can actually find, and a pleasant working environment that will help you run your LNC business at peak efficiency. Get this book at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. I'll see you there. Now let's return to the show. I, that's a good question because I don't know. I have personally not experienced that um, to date, but I could see where it could be. However, we did provide our services to the attorney with our utmost integrity um, to work with them to provide what they needed to proceed with their case. And hopefully, my hope would be that they would acknowledge the hours of time that we did spend on their case, which could potentially help them regardless of one of us having to back out. That, that would be my hope. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah. Those are ugly discussions. I've had a few with attorneys over the years, not from the perspective of a conflict of interest necessarily, but uh, in an expert who the attorney felt did not do a good job and did not want to pay for her services. I remember one case in particular where the attorney felt the expert's evaluation of the case was flawed and he wanted to have me provide him with a different expert and not have to pay for the services of the new expert because he'd already paid for the services of the initial expert. And we had to do some bobbing and weaving and dancing, as we say in the United States, to okay. negotiate a, a way to move forward so that we didn't deprive the new expert of income, which was not fair to her, as well as recognize that the other expert had already been paid. So there was nothing that we could do there. It was a sticky, sticky, sticky situation. Yes. That could happen. I personally have not experienced that. Uh, thank goodness. Um, as an LNC or a legal nurse consultant and as an expert, personally, I can only speak for myself, but I would, I would really stress this to anybody who's thinking about becoming an LNC or working as an expert is your integrity and your ethics are who you are. And this is what you represent. And that's all you have, at least to me in my world, that's all I have for myself is to have integrity and ethics. And when you're reviewing a case, your honesty and your experience and your commitment to the attorney, the case, all the parties involved has to be on the forefront when you are reviewing. 
that is why it's so important to continue practicing in your field of, of expertise to continue to have that knowledge base. If you're out of the hospital system for a length of time or in a doctor's office or whatever realm, because it doesn't necessarily have to be hospital practice when you're reviewing, um, it's important to always have your knowledge base up to speed, your research, your readings, your coursework, you know, your CEUs, all of those things play a part in being a good legal nurse consultant to review and or be an expert. Yeah, that's a great point, Allison. And it, it is something that many people get confused on when they're defining the standard of care. They think about what is current now, maybe not what was current four years ago or five years ago, depending upon the time of the incident. Mm -hmm. And it can be sometimes very difficult to tease out was a particular practice recognized as standard of care at the time, or was it only years later now that that is, of course, people know you, you should do that. Yet it's unfair to evaluate the staff who were functioning under a different standard of care at a different time. That is very true. And which is why I keep books. <laughs> we love books. <laughs> yes, books are very, like I have a whole closet full of books. And part of that reason is for my own, you know, books change, editions change, things move forward. We just have now the neonatal resuscitation, eighth edition just came out. Um, it's different than the sixth edition or the fifth edition. And with, depending upon where you're located, your statute of limitations for a baby case can go until they're 18 years of age. And I personally have worked on cases where the child is now 15 and they're looking back 15 years as mm -hmm. to what happened at that point. So keeping up to date, not only is what, what's current, but what was in the past, because you may have to go back and say, oh, wait, well, in 1990, <laughs> well, that's going back a little bit far, but in the year, let's say 2010, what was the standard of care then compared mm -hmm. to what it is now? And standard of care is really just a, what it is. It's evidence-based medicine and what the practice of most people were doing at that time. And a question I get asked sometimes, um, we all belong to national organizations. You know, we, we all belong to these, these services and we're all learning the same things like in the neonatal world, like we all go to the same conferences, we all hear the same stuff. And because, you know, I've been asked, oh, well, in some rural community somewhere in the country, well, how would you expect them to know that when you live in a major metropolitan area? And my answer is because we all learn from the same national conferences and, you know, it, it all, it all works together. Mm-hmm. I know that you've had occasion to read reports of other experts or deposition transcripts of other experts. When you think about the qualities that you recognize as being part of being a well-prepared, effective expert, how would you describe those qualities? Reading is a very big part of this work. 
understanding medical records and how they intertwine. Most medical records now are electronic. So when you do get them, sometimes they're not always in the right order. And there are some over here and some are over there. Um, so learning how to read a medical record in a stepwise process for me helps me to stay organized. Same with deposition. Depositions can be tedious reading. Um, don't lie in bed when you read a deposition. <laughs> that would be my first advice. Uh, sit, sit up at a nice table straight up and have coffee <laughs> um, because you really want to make sure that you're understanding what's being said. And as an expert, when you're reading another expert's deposition from whatever side you may be on, um, you have to understand what they're saying and be able to interpret that and say, either agree or disagree, or you can agree with another expert too in certain circumstances and say, well, yes, that person's right. But it's, it's really understanding what you're reading and then correlating it with how the case moves forward and what the medical records are showing. They're, it's surprising sometimes when you are reading things, how you're like, oh, oh you know, that's not so good or that, you know, and, and as a nurse, nurse practitioner, and I'm sure you, you know this too, you're, it's, your, it's still kind of like your colleague, right? You're all in the same, you're both nurses or nurse practitioners. And, you know, you're like, you want to, when you read things, it's, it's you know, sometimes you, you're kind of like, I know throughout the years, my point is it's made, it's made me a better clinician. Mm -hmm. It's made me practice differently. And if, if you're looking at getting into this work and you really read your records and you really read your, 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 your depots and you learn as well as you're going about how to be a better clinician and how to, not that we're not there already, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say. I do. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard that from several experts who find that it makes them more aware of clinical patterns. It helps them with their decision-making. They look at the situation perhaps in a fuller way with a greater awareness of the consequences. And I think also, I know from myself with the 25 years of liability expert work that I did, I would spend a little bit more time explaining things to the nurses I worked with one case in particular comes to mind, Allie, with two men in the hospital with the same first name and last name. Mm -hmm. And through a whole series of mistakes, one of the guys ended up receiving blood meant for the other guy. And they were two different blood types. And the transfusion killed the patient. Mm. And it could have been avoided if they had checked the blood numbers at the bedside with the patient's ID band. But instead, two nurses checked the blood bag at the nurse's station with the chart, which had the other guy's medical, medical record number on it. So everything matched up. The blood matched the chart, but the chart had the wrong. For those listening, there, there used to be addressographs, which are basically cards, kind of the size of a credit card that were used to physically stamp pieces of paper. For those who've never heard of addressographs, I've I remember you through the history <laughs> of nursing. Yes. So the, the wrong plate was sent up to the room 
and to the nurse's station. And then they started stamping that guy's medical records with the wrong addressograph. In that case, which ultimately ended up settling on behalf of the plaintiff, one of the big, big lessons that came out of it was check the blood at the bedside with the ID band, which was correct in this case. And I had a nurse shortly after I finished reviewing this case come up to me at the nurse's station and she said, hey, would you check this blood bag with me? And I am sure she regretted asking me that. Because <laughs> I went through a rather detailed explanation and I could see her eyes get real large and she's backing away from me like, oh my God, I didn't realize that that could happen. Mm-hmm. Just that one case, I must have talked to, over the years, dozens of nurses about why it's important to make sure that you're checking the valid numbers and not doing it at the nurse's station. Yes, agreed. (laughs) Agreed. I have had similar experiences with new nurses that I've had the privilege of having in my presence with a lot of teaching and explaining and understanding why it's so important to double check. Um, I had a case I reviewed once uh, for the plaintiff that was an IV that dextrose was triple the amount of what was actually written on the label in the bag. And uh, it went through pharmacy, went through the bedside, went to the patient. And because it was labeled correctly, with what should have been in, that the bag was actually sent down to the lab and and tested. And they came to find that there was triple the amount of glucose in it. And the patient ended up with a very hyperglycemic situation Mm -hmm. requiring tons of intervention. And long story short, you know, reading labels, double checking, triple checking, it teaches us that Errors can happen even when you don't think they will. And if you let your guard down sometimes, or if you say, oh, well, we'll do it over here, you know, this work will teach you that will never (laughs) happen. You are much more diligent and take what you've learned and teach it out to help your fellow colleagues. Definitely. Ali, I know that people who are listening to this program may have questions and would like to reach you, what would be the best way for that to happen? Uh, The best way to reach me would be via email. Um, My email address is fairly simple. It's babynnp at gmail.com. And say that again. Baby, N like Nancy, N like Nancy, P like Paul at gmail.com. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Allie, for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. Um, I think my biggest takeaway is the importance of being thorough and staying up to date when you are functioning as an expert witness. And I hadn't thought about the fact that you might have to have 18 years worth of books. I thought about it related to birth trauma cases, uh, which is the same long statute of limitations, but I hadn't thought about it for the neonates. And the importance of tracking the changes and being aware that something that was considered standard practice in 2010, 
may be completely refuted in 2014. And you have to be aware of what is appropriate, what the medical literature and the evidence-based studies show is the best way to deliver care. Yes, that is the case. So have a big closet. (laughs) (laughs) Big closet. (laughs) Big closet for books. (laughs) Yes, yes. Books are not all electronic. There are wonderful books that you get to hold in your hands and flip the pages and underline. Yes, ma'am. I, I, I miss those days sometimes. Yes. <laughs> I'm still a book person. I still have to hold things in my hands. <laughs> Definitely. And for you who's been watching this show on our YouTube channel or listening on our audio channel, be sure to tell a friend about Legal Nurse Podcast. We are now in our sixth year of production. We are heading towards, and probably by the time you listen to this, we will have passed our 500th show. And we would love for you to tell another legal nurse consultant about Legal Nurse Podcast so that they too can get the benefit of what we share on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pat. This is Pat Iyer with Irene Nobles. Irene and I have just finished a podcast. Irene is the owner of Allegiant Health Advisors, and she is a long-term care expert and consultant with extensive experience in risk management and in long-term care nursing management. She reviews cases as an expert witness. You won't want to miss this podcast if you have anything to do with looking at nursing home cases. Irene, what were some of the key topics that we covered in your podcast? Yes, Pat, thank you for that introduction. We talked um, about what are some of the most common challenges that we might see when reviewing a nursing home record? Um, How is that nursing home record different um, from an acute hospital setting, for example? And what are the different requirements for the frequency of documentation um, and the timeliness of documentation and how that impacts uh, and can reflect uh, on the resident's care. Um, Also, the potential for tampering of the medical record um, might be something uh, to consider. We talked about some things that will, um, some documents that you can request and other supplemental pieces of information that you won't find in the record um, that are very helpful in terms of analyzing the facts of the case. Um, and I mentioned the, some things that would reflect the resident's uh, care, but perhaps not be present in the record. There are lots of little gems that you'll get out of this podcast as you listen to Irene Noble share her perspective of nursing home cases. Be sure to tune in and listen to Irene's podcast and join us for her show. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money 
get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at lncacademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.